right. Well, good morning, Todd. Good morning. Good morning. I don't know what I'm singing right now. It's so low. No, it's very <laughs> so low. Key. It's, it's fine. You know what? <laughs> That's the story of our lives right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everything is off key. Whoa, yeah. <laughs> oh, too much. No, don't worry. I could try and make you sound better no matter what. Well, I appreciate it. I'm just, you know, she, the chords have not woken up this morning. Yes, as always. But let's talk about it. You did the local chapter of Dancing with the Stars for the American Lung Association's Oxygen Ball. And guess what, everybody? Laura won! Yay! <laughs> The whole evening raised, I believe, $212,000 for the American Lung Association. Laura killed it on the dance floor. I was there. I got to be there. I got to see it in person. She did a routine to uh, Katy Perry's, what's the name of the song? Dark, Dark Horse. Horse. Yeah. And it was it was really the, fun. Well, because days for days, you kept singing, make me your Aphrodite in different make me key. your Aphrodite. Oh, yeah. and if I, I got to tell you guys, it was so many different iterations of that that <laughs> it is now, I don't know if the song is ruined or better, but <laughs> no, it was, it was such a good time because Todd got to come in and we got to actually be around each other in person instead of just right. over Zoom. And he opened the show, which was amazing. And it, I mean, it feels, still feels surreal, but like ultimately everybody raised I think 212 was just from without the silent and, and live auction. So even oh, okay. more than that. And I was able to raise almost $60,000. So Holy I'm crap. very proud of myself for that, but also very happy for the American Lung Association to have had that much support. And ultimately, I'm just so glad that I didn't fall over on my face on the dance floor. So, you know, the, the dance was its own thing. But the raising the money you killed it, girl. Well, thanks. I just never want to watch that video ever. <laughs> we, we, when it comes out, I'll post it on our social media so everybody can see. And I just won't ever look at it. Exactly. Well, it was great. You did a great job. And, you know, I actually got to stay for a week. My flight got canceled and we were like, kismet. So, yeah, well, and, <laughs> actually, you know, your mom was sick and my there was a lot. COVID. There was a lot going on, but she's good now. Thank goodness. Yeah, she's doing great now. Yeah. Shout out to Duchess. Yes. Shout out to Duchess, who is like our biggest fan. And we got to spend a lot of good quality time together. It was awesome. She said to me the other day, she's like, if you cuss one more time on that program, <laughs> I will not share this to anyone on my Facebook. Oh, <laughs> no. I was like, oh gosh. Well, we've shit. recorded some. <laughs> we've already recorded some that may have some curse words. We'll start bleeping them. Exactly. Sorry, mom. Sorry, Duchess. Yeah, she said. You know, the reason she's called Duchess is because she didn't like the term grandma. So she said, "Y'all need to call me Duchess." I like that. That was her first go-to. That it Listen, wasn't anything else. <laughs> it's hysterical. It's hysterical. She said, "Call me queen. Yeah. Call me she goddess." Lives, she lives on Gammon Street, so it's like Duchess of Gammon. <laughs> <laughs> that. Oh, I love her so much. Me too. Well, today we've got a very, very amazing guest on the program. Yeah. Yes, we do. We have an awesome guest, David Goldie Goldsmith. He was just more than I guess we could have ever hoped for as far as being so open and honest about a lot of things. One being his relationship with his dad, who everybody probably knows out there is known as the most interesting man from the Dos Equis commercials. So I think we both kind of came away from it 
with not like a heaviness, but a little bit of like a wow, like that was just so much. And and he has overcome so much and done so much. And I just think he's an incredible human. So I'm, you know, Todd, thank you for introducing him to me and the world. Of course, you know, he is an incredible artist, you know, an actor. He's a hilarious actor. He's a great uh, comedian. Like he says in the on the program about how his roots are, you know, he's rooted in improv and, you know, nominated for an Emmy Award at age 15. Like he is the real deal. He's had so many different avenues and he's just really honest about his his childhood and how he grew up in Hollywood. And it just, it was a and really... And all the famous I people he still, was surrounded by. We're still processing the interview. We're still very honestly. much processing this. <laughs> I mean, affected. it was... <laughs> Yeah. And I th- I'm sure it's even more so for you because you're, you're you're close to him. But it's, yeah. you know, for me, it was almost like we both got off and we're like, oh, oh what's wrong with us? But it's yeah. not, you we know, just, it, it we think, felt heavy. Uh, we felt yeah. heavy because we could feel the pain that he's had to endure and the trauma recovery he's had to go through. But he has come out, you know, on the other side and he's still working on it. You know, he's still in therapy and he still he still knows that self, you know, he, he working on yourself is, is important. It's imperative. Yeah. I mean, and this is what we're here for is talking about overcoming trauma and doesn't mean you have to be done. Doesn't mean exactly. you're just fixed. <laughs> exactly. it's, it's a process for it's a lot of us. It's an ongoing conversation constantly yes. to heal. And can you give our listeners, uh, I think you have a bio. Of course. Yes, I do. So David Goldsmith, I will go ahead and introduce this lovely man. In 1971, it was an amazingly good year for Earth. I wonder who wrote this. David Goldsmith drew us his first breath and exhaled the beginning of a unique and interesting life. Born to character actor Jonathan Goldsmith and former model Betty Gilday, David was the product of his environment. This led him to being a young actor, nominated for an Emmy at 15, stand-up comedy, improv, directing commercials, and now working with countless filmmakers, shaping the look of their creative vision through optics. David, now mostly known by his nickname Goldie, shares his experiences of life, love, family, parenthood, and the gouge in his soul left by a lifetime working in entertainment. So without further ado, introducing David Goldie Goldsmith. Well, good morning. Hello. Good morning, Gold. Hello. How are you this morning? I I am me. That's the best part of the morning. I can tell you that much. There's a lot going on for me today. This being one of those big things. So it's very cool to be here. We're very happy to have you. Goldie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and what initially drew you to the film and television industry? Well, absolutely. So my name is David Goldsmith, and I was born and raised here in Los Angeles, California. I actually born at Cedar sinai Medical Center to a couple of parents that worked in entertainment. My mom was a long ago a model and an actress and a TV host. And at some party in a drunken stupor, I guess she met my father, who was an aspiring actor who had done some work on Broadway and character stuff, TV and soap operas and stuff like that. And I guess that passion was uninterruptible and resulted in whom you're talking to now. And born here in L.A., raised here in Los Angeles around the industry. It's kind of something hard to can't swing a dead cat without hitting something industry related here. And <laughs> boom, here I am. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of my entry into it. You know, I didn't come here from Indiana with a dream. I was born into the nightmare. <laughs> so I guess kind of to piggyback off of that. <laughs> Did you see it as, as kind of a nightmare? Like what drew you into participating in it? Because some people might be like, this is too much. I, I'm not a fan. I'm not going to do this. 
So what brought you to it? Desperation is kind of a unique thing. No, <laughs> I will say this. This is a very anecdotal story, but I guess it's a podcast, so you'd want those. Preferred. I've been married now 14, no, twice. And the first round I remember was my wedding day. And my, my best man came up to me and he said, you don't seem to be too excited about this. I said, what, what do you mean? He says, it's your wedding day. It's the most exciting day of your life. And I remember looking at him square in the eye and I said, well, you've never blown up a helicopter. And that's how I got John into it. <laughs> the entertainment industry is a, a very unique window into experiences and people and scenarios that are just not available in any profession or maybe even in any setting on earth. And so it's incredibly intoxicating. It, for me, it was never, I got to meet. It was always, I got to do. And so, you know, as a kid with a dad who was always working on a TV show that was recognizable, A-Team, Knott's Landing, Dallas, all that stuff, Gunsmoke, Charlie's Angels, etc. You know, I'd visit him on set and the makeup guys would always give me like a scar on my face or, you know, make me look like I burnt my hand and take it home. Mom, I got hurt. You know, it was just always fun. And the people were just intoxicating and the scenarios were cool and car chases and gunfights and all the stuff that you're really supposed to avoid in life was recreated in entertainment. And so it was a really cool access. And that was what drew me in as a kid, for sure. There were some repulsive parts of it that are still repulsive today. I'm happy to talk about them, but that was the lure. Okay. And Todd knows you a little bit better than I do, but I have been doing some of my own research and Todd has given me a little bit of some anecdotal stuff as we talked about, which please, as many anecdotes as possible. That's that's what we're here for. But I have heard that you you went to school with quite a few people that ended up being kind of, you know, what would say household names at this point. Can you kind of tell us what it was like to see or to be in school with some of these A-list actors? And what it's like to see so many of your people that were in your class achieve success. During my informative years, I really did cross paths with a tremendous pool of talented, successful people. I'm a graduate of Beverly Hills High, and I am, you know, my alumni were, you know, Monica Lewinsky and right really? before he was, was the Menendez brothers who rose to fame. Um, yeah, I mean, these are these are people that I didn't, you know, we weren't pals, but I certainly went to school and saw them in the halls and. That sort of thing. I'm sorry. I'm freaking out. The Menendez brothers. Are you serious? It sounds like a boy band, doesn't it? But it's I not. know, it's but I don't. Murderers. Yeah, they were murderers. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, there was a bunch of kids that sort of roamed the halls and he was on a soap opera. And, you know, it's Beverly Hills High, for, of course. But more notably, I had worked myself as an actor. We can talk about that whenever you want. Uh, it's not terribly thrilling. But during that time, I was in my youth and, and I couldn't attend regular school. So I was in a trailer on the side of a soundstage being educated. And then when that works sort of dried up, I wasn't terribly ready for regular school because I had no routine and no skills. And my education was like, oh, look, you know, in Annapolis, go, we need you back on set. Okay, cool. So I was a bit behind. And, and in that process, there was a couple of sort of therapeutic things for me that I needed to get through those days. One of them was sort of not specialized education, but maybe a little bit more attention than most people. Mm -hmm. But that also resulted in me getting involved very heavily into some comedy improv classes, which just absolutely changed my life. And it is from those experiences that I met other people, Christina Applegate, Leah Remini, Drew Barrymore, Fred Savage, Joaquin Phoenix, all these people that I sort of came into contact with. In fact, Joaquin Phoenix and Fred Savage were on a TV show that I did as a kid called Morning Star, Evening Star. Have you heard of it? 
I have, and I have met Fred Savage before, so I feel like we are connected in that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, most people have not heard of it. That's the it, you were nominated for an Emmy for at, at 15, correct? Yeah. So, so the studio had sort of, and the publicist had sort of done a blanketed sort of, hey, come look at our cast. It was an amazing show, actually. It was the producers of The Waltons. This is way back, guys, because I'm super old, but... They had kind of reassembled and created a show called Morning Star, Evening Star, which was about a state-funded orphanage and a state-funded sort of retirement community. And the orphanage had burnt down, and the orphans had to go move into the attic of the home of the elderly folks. And it was sort of the old and young coming together, and it was an amazing cast. Scatman Crothers, Sylvia Sidney, Kate Reed, Elizabeth Wilson, I mean, Mason Adams, tremendous cast. And then we also had the kids. And of those kids were Chris Peters, John Peters' son, myself, Joaquin, who was at that time a younger actor named Leaf Phoenix. And yeah, he was, I, I believe, born Leaf Phoenix. I'm not sure. If you look up early credits, Fred Savage. Yeah, we, we it was an amazing experience. But because of the attention that that show got sort of critically, many of us got nominated for an Emmy. And it was, I was nominated for an outstanding lead actor in a dramatic series up against John Forsyth and Don Johnson. And it was crazy. And it, it was, I'll never forget the night of the show. They were announcing nominated for outstanding lead actor in dramatic series. And John Forsyth and the crowd went wild. Don Johnson, Miami Vice. Crowd went wild. And, you know, they kept going, George Harrison. And then it was like David Goldsmith. David Goldsmith. <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh my God, you hear a mouse fart. But it was super cool. And <laughs> I did not win. I believe Don Johnson won that year. Um, for you refer to yourself as failed child actor because you didn't win the Emmy? <laughs> sure. Yes. Thanks for bringing it up. We try not to, but it happens. Todd can't really help himself sometimes. Sure can't. Mm-hmm. You know, I call myself a failed child actor because I just mentioned some names that probably many of your listeners know. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, here I am. And you're getting to know me yes. because of trauma. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be a failed child actor, in my opinion. But yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I look back fondly on my work. I still work. I've had the great fortune of working on a tremendous amount of motion pictures and projects. And then I, I'm often ushered onto the set and in some sort of character role doing something cool. And I still get residual checks and I'm still a member of the Screen Actors Guild and I'm still very heavily involved. But I, I am not a successful working actor like those names, for sure. Well, I'd say that you definitely have a... You know, I like to call myself, so I'm, I'm now back to practicing law, but before when I wasn't practicing and I decided to open a restaurant instead, I would call myself a recovering lawyer. So I would consider you more of a recovering actor because you went on to do a lot of other things, as we know. And for everybody out there, you know, we're going to read his bio, but I mean, you have done lots of direct assisting and just general, I mean, producing, all of that. So I know you're a little self-deprecating, but you don't need to be all the time. We think you're very talented. I got to be the foil to Todd sometimes. So we know your mom was a playmate or slash model and your dad. If I can interrupt. Yes. She was a, she was a Playboy bunny at the Playboy Club. Oh. Yeah. She was not like a spread your legs bunny. She was like, get me a drink, honey. She was sort of like a waitress at the Playboy Club when it was really fashionable and cool to be there. She was a, a model. She was a print model. Also, there's a thing I used to do 
they would hire very beautiful younger women with beautiful figures to wear the latest fashion and roam the aisles. And she had done that for many, many years. And she said, oh, that's available in ladies and you know, whatever. And, and that was her thing. She also was on a, a show. She was like the Vanna White of the 50s on a show called Queen for Day. And so she was like, oh, you want a new washing machine? And she'd stand there and present it. And, and she did that. She's on the Jack Parr show. She co-hosted a show with Johnny Carson for a little while. So she was a, an on-air person personality and good-looking lady back in the day and still is she's 91 this year and she is still dating it's it's unbelievable oh that's amazing that's really awesome so you had her as a, as a mother so that was obviously you know you have a tremendous respect for her but your dad is also an actor who is most famously known as the most interesting man in the world from the Dos Equis commercials mr jonathan goldsmith could you tell us a little bit about what it was and is like having two parents in the industry and a little bit more about your relationship with them. Absolutely. So as I just mentioned about mom, I'll just start there because that's where I came from. She's an amazing human being. She's a narcissist like the rest of all of us in Hollywood, but she's spectacularly a narcissist. You know, you can call her and say, God, I just had the most incredibly painful day at work. You know, this person did that, this person did that, and I stubbed my toe, and then I, the stapler went off on my nuts, and I went crazy and a horrible day. And she goes, well, you know, when I was working, it was the same thing. And what? <laughs> We, we just she had no, the exact same day. <laughs> or worse, you know, it's always worse yeah. or whatever. At this point, it's frustratingly charming. It was a little rougher growing up because she also is a socialite and still is. And oftentimes that took precedence. So if I wanted to go play catch or go do something like a kid would do, she'd say, go, go, just go. And I would go and then I would be out there alone. That was a little bit of a unique thing, but it's something I just grew up with. It was very standard. And then you play that off of dad. My dad, to give you an example of who he is as a human being, he was on Night of the – I believe he was in Night of the Iguana on Broadway. I think he was man number nine or something like that. He wasn't – starring or headlining. And I believe this is a, I may screw it up, but I believe that was the, the, the show. And Dustin Hoffman and he were both sort of on the same, on par with each other role-wise. And they'd always kind of been a competition. My dad's from New York. And so he's a New York actor and he kind of had made the rounds in the, the 50s and 60s trying to make a name for himself and did some soap opera work or whatever. But he's not in the iguana, you know, whatever. But he got into a little altercation with Mr. Hoffman backstage because they were rivals. And my father took him aside and said, you know the difference between you and me, Dustin? I'm going to make it and you're not. Mm. Yeah. Kind of eating those words now, probably. A little bit. But, you know, that, that, that's, that's just a famous little family story of ours because he sees the irony in that, of course. And, you know, he's a, a relatively focused and aggressive person when it comes to his career. And again, a narcissist on a level that is epic and Olympic, actually. And that translated always into he came first, always. You know, and as a kid, you, you process that the best you can. But as an adult, you question it more than process it. And when you become a parent yourself, you just are flabbergasted because you just can't even imagine. And it kind of, for me, it's gotten uglier as I've gotten older and more cognizant of what was supposed to be. So I'm not saying I'm the victim of any sort of abuse that was intentional, but I certainly grew up in a household of two people who had other aspirations than being mom and a dad, and certainly other than being a husband and a wife as well. well it wasn't like, you know, I was tied up in a corner, barely being fed and beaten. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, emotionally, it was absolutely that. Did your father specifically ever champion you 
in your career on and off camera? And like, was he proud when you were nominated for the Emmy? Stuff like that. That's a big question. So, I mean, how much time do you have? We've got all the time in the world for you. Oh, that's good. That's good. I my, you don't have to start the chopper right now. I'll be done a little later than expected. Just, you know, <laughs> they're just on the tarmac there. Anyway, so Todd, to answer your question, when I found comedy improvisation, it really changed my life. It was a place for me to be me. You know, one minute I was acting like a monkey up in a tree. The next minute I was the sultan over the sea. I could go anywhere, do anything, be anyone at any given moment. And I ultimately, the big one was that I could say anything. And for a 14 or 15 year old kid who, you know, I wasn't squelched at home, but there were certainly standards that were to be kept. It wasn't a mommy dearest thing, but it was a mommy dearest thing. And in a weird way, not a not a dramatic, horrible way. You know, people wouldn't say, oh, my God, they're so terrible to his son. It's not that. It's just, you know, my mom sort of was old school and you, you dressed every day to, if you were going to leave the house, you know, and that sort of stuff. So when I got found improv, I really did spread my wings emotionally. And also creatively, I didn't realize that I had so much locked up inside. So to answer your question, Todd, I had to start there because at that point, my father sort of, we had common ground for the first time ever. He understood joy of the sort of applause. He understood the high that you get when something clicks and a scene happens, whether it's scripted or improvised. When a scene works between two actors, there is no more, it's like the jazz musicians riffing, man. When it, when it, you find that groove, it is intoxicating as an artist but it's intoxicating for the audience as well and when when everyone's intoxicated it's a party man it's awesome so that was the best part of the beginning of your answer the best part of it was in the beginnings when i was just learning and i was just spreading my wings there was a lot of communication and a lot of collaboration and a lot of support for sure but then something happened and it was unexpected. It was unintentional. What had happened was I started getting successful. I was doing improv at the Laugh Factory on Sunset Boulevard here in Los Angeles. Every Thursday night we would open up. I was part of a teenage improvisational group called You've Got to Be King. It was all teenagers. Everyone was 18 and you were doing adult themed improv as kids. How does that work? <laughs> Well, you know, we would ask the audience, which was predominantly adult, you know, where's an interesting place to go on our first date? And, you know, we would act that out, you know, at, at a base, base at a laundromat, boom, you know, and you go. So when I say adult base, we, it's very interactive and most of the audience was adult. So it wasn't like, you know, you're giving Sally a blowjob on the top. Yeah, of I was going to ask, no, so I was like, what, no, no, no. Is, what is this adult based situation? Okay, no, so but just when like I say it, it was for it, it was kids performing for adults. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Maybe I should have said it differently, but we opened up for a young, very talented stand-up named Mark Price. He was very famous as playing Skippy, the next-door neighbor on Family Ties. This is dating me, but he had a, a regular gig Thursday nights at the Laugh Factory, and we opened for him regularly. And it became a showcase. I was approached by an agent uh, named Harry Gold, who was a very famous agent, and his daughter was Missy Gold, and she was on uh, Who's the Boss and other shows, I believe, if I got that right. And yeah, he said, you know, you're very talented. We'd love to represent you. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And I talked to my dad. I'll never forget that night. I could just see a shift, that little twinkle in the eye that you get from your parents when they're proud of you. It was extinguished that night. There seemed to be some sort of something was wrong. Like, oh, um, here we go. Uh, they, they want to represent you. It was that sort of a thing. And I went with it. 
few weeks later, I landed a role on uh, the new Twilight Zone. I was Ooh. kid number two. Uh, I was ridiculous. I was jumping out of the bushes in a pig mask, scaring one of the town kids in an episode called Shadow Man. But it was directed by Joe Dante, who's a very big film director. And it was a really cool experience. And uh, I really it. I did some commercials and ultimately landed a job on this TV show, Morning Star, Evening Star, as the cast member. And it, it was a pilot that we shot that was supposed to go for 12 episodes. We shot six and they pulled the plug on us. But that was the beginning of where I kind of am with my dad now. And it's a, you know, it's an interesting story in the sense that it's unexpected. You know, you couldn't imagine that this would be the case because unlike many father-son relationships, my father and I, unfortunately, are sort of in competition and we shouldn't yeah. be. However, I'm not a competitor in any way. I mean, I'm almost half his age and I don't know what that's all about, but I can tell you that the beginning of the end for me with my relationship with my dad and possibly even with my career was that this was a time when, you know, a young actor, there was no cell phones, there was no internet, no emails or text. 1982, everyone had a beeper. My father was no different. And, you know, I had endured years and years of my father's agent taking precedent over everything. Every family vacation, every phone call, the phone would ring. He would literally push an old lady out of the way to answer it in case it was his agent. It was like those kinds of times. And it was really weird because when you're a working actor and you're underage, you have to have what's called a guardian. So basically, you come to work as a kid and you have someone who ever brought you to work generally will stay with you all day and they're your rep. God forbid you get hurt, they take you to the hospital. Whatever it is, they're there kind of as your assistant, but really mostly to look over and be your guardian. And my father was setting me up for failure left and right. And I didn't know it at the time, but I saw it happening and I see it clearly now. Like there was one job I was on a show called The New Gidget. It was a weird time. There's a lot of news. The New Twilight Zone, The, the New, new Gidget. Twilight. <laughs> exactly. And my parents had just divorced. I'd say at the time I was 13 years old working out in this TV show. And he drove me reluctantly to work and dropped me off and knew one of the grips and paid him 25 bucks and said, hey, give me my kid's guardian. I got an audition today and left. And then the studio teacher came and said, hey, good morning. Where's your guardian? I go, oh, that guy. She said, the guy, the guy on the ladder? I said, yeah. She goes, uh, no, no, no. Where, where's your guardian? Where's your parent, your cousin, uncle, someone? No, my dad had an audition today. Well, she said, you can't work. And I thought, what? She said, you, you got to get a hold of your father. I mean, you can't, you can't be here without a guardian. Long story short, at the time, my father, like I said, they were divorced. He was living on a sailboat in Rio del Rey. And the only way you could have a phone on the boat at that time was there was literally a cord plugged into the side of the boat, which fed a jack like in your house. Anyway, people tried to call him and call him and call him. They called his agent. They called everyone. They couldn't get a hold of him. The guy that's obsessed with his phone couldn't get <laughs> Couldn't, couldn't get a hold of him. The long and the short of it was is that he had claimed that the boat had shifted in the slip and that the phone cord had come unplugged. And mm. we heard that story at about 11 p.m. I had a, like a 6 a.m. call time. I was supposed oh to have gosh. been done, done by 5. The company wrapped at 7 p.m. And the casting agent, who was a friend of my father's and mine and my mom's, came to pick me up. I had sat all day in the trailer, the school trailer. I could not go on set. They had to shoot around all my stuff. 
stuff and rebook it for another day. And I ended up back at the casting agent. I remember her name was Pam Polifroni. She was such a sweet lady. And I went back to her house, you know, kind of scared, didn't know where my father was. My mother at the time was living in Las Vegas with her her new husband. And he picked me up at her house after she had gotten me pizza. We'd both fallen asleep on her couch and he had claimed that was happening. So that was the beginning of sort of some sabotage that was going on that I didn't quite at the time process. Well, there's two um, things, right? There's sabotage and abandonment. Not only abandonment, well, like right. as, as as his father, but like literal abandonment at the set on the set. Well, and like just the the, the fact that what age were you when you said that you got your agent? I think I have my dates screwed up because I'm not good with that. No, no worries. Yeah, and, and just for the audience's sake, I'm really bad with numbers and times and dates. And, and the reason is I've learned by the time I graduated high school between working as an actor, I've got, I'd gone to 17 different schools wow. growing up. So when some people goes, oh, it was 1973, it was like yeah. two in the afternoon and I was with my friend. I, I don't have those sort of timeline memories. Yeah. And the reason was, is that back to my father, he was a working actor, but he also didn't work all the time. And the way he decided that he would support his family is by buying and selling homes. Have a windfall on a shouldn't make a bunch of money, he'd buy a house, he would fix it up, he would paint it, he would do all that work, and then we'd sell it and move. And so I'd gone to all these different schools in between his acting jobs because that's how he supported the family, which in theory sounds great. He supported his family, but in practice, I don't have high school friends. I don't have friends from school and I don't have a timeline that makes any sense to me, even myself. So I apologize. My parents divorced when I was 12. I got my first agent, Harry Gold, when I was 14. So I'm sorry about that. Oh, no, no worries. I just feel like it was like kind of expressing that not necessarily competitiveness early on. He was almost kind of just like, meh, I'm not really. It wasn't intentional to kind of sabotage your acting career. I think maybe part of it was he was just so self-absorbed. Yeah, it certainly was not premeditated. It was never my father's behavior, even my mom's behavior. Both of them. Yes, they're narcissists. Yes, they're entertainment people and they're unique and fun and bubbly and charming and wonderful. They don't have Larsky in their heart. They're not, no malice. This is just a byproduct of who they are. You know, it manifests itself in ways that can be very hurtful, very challenging, but it's not like, you know, they sit at home going, you know, I'm going to fuck them. Here's what I'm going to do. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a lot of um, with with narcissism. It's not like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to ruin somebody's life today. But, you know, it does have and like you said before, I think that it's very common to look back on things and start to piece it together of, oh, that's why they did this. That doesn't make it any less hurtful, though. No, absolutely. And that, um, that's and maybe think, the most painful thing, just to interject quickly, is that when people hurt without intending to hurt, the victim often says, well, they, you know, they didn't, they didn't mean mm-hmm. that. And so you keep getting them off the hook. You keep giving them the benefit of the doubt. You keep giving them a get-out-of-jail-free card. And then yeah. after a while, you're standing there just empty and raw, and they're like, what, what happened? Well, I mean, it, obviously, you know, you kind of mentioned that around the time that you you end up getting an agent, you felt that there was a little bit of a separation with you and your dad as far as he starts competitively. And and you obviously were just trying to do your best, keep going with what you wanted to do. As a follow up to that, you know, your father wrote a memoir about his life at one point called, was it Keep Interesting? No, what it the... <laughs> stay. I think it's Stay Interesting. Yeah. 
Stay interesting. There you go. And he makes some pretty lofty claims in that whole book. I mean, just a couple of things that John Wayne shot him in the head seven times. He once told Dustin Hoffman, as you referred to, that he wouldn't make it as an actor, that he saved a man's life by climbing Mount Whitney. But we kind of want to know what your thoughts on the memoir were. And do you feel like it was an accurate depiction of his life? Yeah. So... That memoir happened on the tail end of the success he'd had as the world's most interesting man for the Dos Equis stuff. But it's really important before we even get there, because, you know, this rivalry between he and I really came to a head when I got nominated for an Emmy. In his mind, he had been working for 30 years, striving and beating the the pavement and, and making the phone calls and doing the auditions and countless projections and all of that stuff, the highs, the lows, all of it. And here I was, this snot-nosed kid in his mind, you know, right out of the gate on a TV show. I get the pilot he never got. I get a series he never got. And now I got an Emmy nomination. You're his child. You would, you would think that he well, would be excited for you. You would. Because you're, you're, almost, you're almost a representation of his parenting. Yeah, but you have to can remember, Todd, when we go back to talking, when we talked to Tina and about narcissism and, and how that all kind of plays out. I mean, it's like children are kind of a, an extension of you when they're young and they're agreeable and they do what they want you to do. But then once they start having, they become competition or you're not getting the same attention, then now they're not an extension of you anymore. They're a problem because they're not seen as a part of you anymore. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I believe both my parents love their kids when their kids are making them look good. Mm -hmm. But whenever there's a challenge, whenever there's something that's, you know, can be seen as not edifying them or not bolstering their ego, it becomes a threat. It's a really strange thing. And it's very related to entertainment and the arts, because, you know, when you work on camera or on print or you're in front of people, everything matters. Every nose hair, every eyebrow hair, everything about you, you scrutinize. And so it's a very vulnerable place to be when you have a kid out there, maybe even out doing you. I totally get it. I I get where it comes from, but I don't get a one isn't mature enough to squelch that and go, but that's my kid. Like I can understand feeling it. I totally do. You know, you wanted to be a baseball player your whole life and you never made it. And your kid does. Of course you're proud of them. And of course you're heartbroken because they did and you didn't. I get that. That's okay to have those feelings. It's normal. What's not normal is to take it out on the kid. In all fairness, my father has never taken anything out on me intentionally. But our relationship is horrific. And it's the result of this. And it's amazing because I realized it. I have been in and out of therapy my whole life. It was something I grew up with because my parents have been in therapy. It was always the thing to do, group therapy. And it was a Hollywood thing. Agents would prescribe therapy and therapeutic groups to their actors who were all suffering from whatever. And then it was a very great networking opportunity. Scientology started that way in a weird way too. Hurt people coming together can do great things. And that was an interesting, I'm not a Scientologist, but I'm just saying those are the kinds of things that were prescribed in the sixties and seventies and eighties for a lot of performers was to, you know, why don't you all get together and talk about it and get your shit together. My point is, is that It wasn't therapy that ever, I think therapy gave me the tools to be cognizant, but it was a discussion with my 13-year-old son that had me fully realize and remember the truth as to why my father and I are at odds and have been since I can, long as I can remember. And that happened in a story that I'm happy to share, but I want to answer your question about the book. So 
my father and I have had a really tough time connecting. And it's, I really do believe it is because of what we just discussed. And he's been in and out of my life, my whole life, not because he's taken off or whatever. I generally retreat and go sort of find my sanity and center myself because being in a relationship with my father is not an easy ride for anybody. And it's really, he's a unique person who he himself, I've come to realize, is a victim of a lot of abuse, real abuse as a kid. And I didn't know that until sort of recently. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's just interesting because, you know, in his memoir, he's very much complimentary of his father and how great his father was. Did the abuse come from there? No. Okay. And that's just one of the, you asked what's missing and how do I feel about the book? And one of the things that's missing is that when he was a child, his mother was a socialite and a model in New York in the twenties and thirties. And she was absolutely beautiful and absolutely popular and literally should never have had a child. And she was not the greatest mom. I mean, there are stories I've heard where he'd be locked naked in the closet for a few days without food or water. Things like that. Wow. wow. Horrific, horrific stuff. I do not know all the details. He's never really, but I've heard it. And she's a narcissist on all that's even, you know, it's gargantuan. She would say, oh, what would you like? I'd come to my house. I'll make you whatever you want for dinner. I'll do whatever you want. You tell me what you want. I, say, I love prime rib. Prime rib. The best prime rib. Mm-hmm. You get there. She, she makes salmon. It was eccentric, but it was also, it was all bullshit. She just said just hey, whatever she wanted yeah. to say and, and do whatever she wanted to do. And he grew up with that. So we, we've ebb and flowed, my father and I, for years and years and years. And one of the things that had happened was my daughter was born and my ex-wife had had a run-in with my father that was uncomfortable in which my father had, had a couple too many martinis and became even a little flirtatious, as uncomfortable as it might sound. I don't think he would have followed through with anything like that, but he was he is a charming guy and he's handsome and and he grew up with a lot of attention. And my wife my ex-wife was there. I was on location working on a movie and he had come by to do some laundry because he was basically living at the back of his truck on auditions for a week because he had lived up north in Northern California and was stop by and it was just uncomfortable. She called me and said, your dad looked at a bunch of martinis. He's like, I don't know, flirty. I don't know. I just, I don't feel comfortable here alone with him. And I'm like, what? So I confronted him. He said, what are you talking about? I, I did a load of laundry. I don't remember what I can't, I don't really remember the full story, full story other than my ex-wife was very uncomfortable. And when my daughter was born, there had been so many ups and downs between he and I. My ex-wife was like, I really don't want him in the hospital. I don't want him here. It's too much. And I respected that. And so he wasn't around for the birth of his first grandchild. Because of that, it kind of caused a rift for about 10 years where he was completely out of my life. And that was when he landed the role as the Dos Equis guy. And the irony is, is when you're not talking to a parent, it's tough. You're always reminded, every commercial, mom, dad, you know, whatever. But what's even more insane is every billboard in town has a picture of your dad on it. Yeah. And every time you turn on the TV, you see him and you're seeing success that he had dreamt of your whole life. You knew all he ever wanted was literally what is happening for him. You see it happening. And and again, it's like that weird thing where, you know, you're jealous, but inwardly and outwardly, you're kind. In my case, I totally related. Like I was jealous. Like, wow, he fucking landed a huge deal here. But I was happy for him. I didn't have that weird how dare he? You know, I was yeah. like, wow, he finally, he finally got it. But I didn't want him to know that. I didn't want him to know I was proud of him because fuck him. He didn't make me feel proud. So the memoir comes out 
we had sort of reconciled our relationship a bit. The memoir comes out. I'm not in it. There's no fucking mention of me. Did he mention uh-huh. his other children? I believe he did. <laughs> I mean, how many children did he have? Or how many siblings do you have? When he was married to my mother, I guess my father just couldn't keep in his pants. And I guess he didn't understand that there were condoms. So after they divorced, my father remarried to a wonderful lady, Margot, who was my stepmom and just a great woman and put up with a lot of bullshit. And I'll never forget my father called me and goes, son, I have someone I want you to meet. You have a sister. Excuse me. Turns out he had an affair with an actress who I have to keep nameless during the time he was married. And she had a child. And that was my new sister who I got to meet. And of course, my father being the dramatic actor, oh, isn't she gorgeous? It's my daughter, you know, this bullshit. Mm-hmm. And it was all about her for about a year. And then she started to realize, oh, he's he's officially full of shit, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's officially full of shit. I never really got along with her. She lived in Palmdale, which is way outside of L.A. It's sort of the sub- suburbs of the suburbs. She grew up with a Catholic mother and went to the church and everything I never did. We were siblings, but by DNA. And uh, it was really weird. But it, it was a week and then it was like, oh, I have a sister. And then it was, uh, she's fucking crazy. And we never, I still, I have not talked to her since, you know, the 80s. So my newly met sister and I didn't have anything in common and we didn't have really a relationship of any kind. And, and because of that, we drifted apart really quickly. And, you know, she's a very different person, different background, different life. We weren't raised by any of the same standards. So it was just very hard to relate to, certainly as a sibling. But then, but wait, there's more, as they say. My father introduced me to yet another daughter, this time from a Delta Airlines stewardess. Again, happening uh, during the time he was married to my mom. And this particular young lady was was really interesting because she was a, uh, an evangelical, evangelical, whatever, Christian. Evangelical, yeah. That's the one. And uh, she played guitar and would sing these songs about Jesus in heaven. And that lasted about a week for me. <laughs> Apparently, he has grandchildren from these two daughters that he's still very much in contact with. I know nothing about it. And I'm very happy to know nothing about it. Wait a minute. You know he's in contact with those grandchildren? Yes. Yes. But he's not really in contact with your children. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to clarify that. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So, this book comes out. And some real sloppy elements of his memoir are missing. So, for me, I put the book down. I've never finished it. I wasn't so much offended that I wasn't in it. I was offended that he isn't capable as an adult man after everything he's been through, everything he's seen so many go through, that he is incapable of being truly vulnerable and writing a fucking memoir. Yeah. I understand you might leave out to protect or you might – some things are just too traumatic or whatever – but it's, it's it's just a bunch of horseshit as far as I'm concerned. I'm not saying the stuff that's in the book isn't true. It is, from what I saw, it's largely true. And it's largely very complimentary to him, which is why the book didn't do well. Mm-hmm. I think the audience that read that book realized, oh, me, me, me. Yeah, and that was kind of what I got a feel from doing some kind of background research on it was that the press junket that he kind of did to promote the book was a lot about how he actually kind of is the most interesting man in real life. And as cool as that might be, I think it's kind of a hard thing for a lot of people to relate to. Right. And, and it speaks he, volumes, right? Yes. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, you don't write a memoir to self-promote. You write a memoir to be cathartic and to share. People have interest in me and I just want to help others. That's really what it's supposed to be. Yeah. It sounds definitely like there was a lot of him continuing the cycle from his childhood. And I'm I'm sure that the abuse or or whatever kind of neglect that you've learned about has informed you a little bit as to what made him who he is. But it is very, I can imagine it being very frustrating and hurtful. The trauma just keeps going because now he's hurting your children by not being in their lives. So he won't, it's like he he doesn't realize that his inaction in your life and in their life is causing more pain down the road. Yes. And it's a cycle. And and also that disconnect is carried with us. I have it. I'm not going to lie. You know, I'm a very disconnected person emotionally when it comes to things because I learned how to be that way to save myself. But that that transfers through my life. I have colleagues and friends. Oh, my God, my aunt died. And I go, okay. Because you can't. Yeah, I just it's very hard for me to, to be emotionally vulnerable because every time I ever was, I got trampled on. And again, it was never intentional. But, you know, to, to my father's credit and to my mom's, but specifically as we're talking about him. And, and he is interesting. He's an amazing person. That's what I wanted to say. He's an amazing guy. If you were to meet him, you'd walk away from that meeting like, wow, that guy's awesome. He's funny and charming and wonderful and intelligent and well-read and experienced and interesting. He's all of those things, as by the way, is pretty much everybody. But his is unique. His is unique. He's some brushes with greatness. He went to Camp David. He spent time with Obama. He's an amazing person. He's worked with, he lives in Vermont now. He's worked with Bernie Sanders. He's, he's very politically active. He's a wonderful, good, kind-hearted person at the end of the day. He's a fucking horrible father. And he is a miserable husband. And it is because he is fucking miserable. And that is it. I mean, I, at my age, I, I, I'm 51, so this could be my last Zoom ever. And um, getting really getting long in the tooth. I don't know. I hit a clearly the wall. humor. I can I can already tell that the humor was a really good coping skill for you, as far as deflecting and. If you don't laugh, you cry, baby. I know, and that is a, that's basically the basis of our show. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. So yeah, the book came out and fuck that book because it's nothing. It's it's it uh, it does not represent who that man is because mm-hmm. it only reps the side of the man that he wants to share. And who the fuck mm-hmm. wants to know that? We can yeah. see that anywhere. That's nothing. I mean, let's let's find out. You know, do you do you, when you wipe? Do you fold or crumple? We want to know this shit. We want to know about people. At the end yeah. of the day, do you think that your father? is aware or he understands how much he he hurt you, how much he screwed this up, how much he kind of got sort of in his own way as being a great dad. To answer your question, I have to tell a story. He knows not what he does. And I'll give you the, the best possible example of that. When he and I reconciled, I had remarried. I have an amazing wife, Kateria. She's from Thailand. I paid extra for her. Stop. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> she, she is not mail order. She is the most special person that's ever come into my life and has opened up and broadened my lens on the world in a way that I could go on. That's a whole other podcast. She's a talented, amazing, kind-hearted Buddhist and an amazing chef. And we just opened up a restaurant together. And it's just she's an amazing addition to our life. And I say our, she's an amazing stepmom. It's an amazing person. But I reconciled with my father during the time that she came back into my life. So about seven years ago. And he was still in every billboard in town. And his grandkids had never met him. And he had a 13-year-old granddaughter. 
and you know a nine-year-old grandson or seven-year-old grandson and they wanted to meet their granddad because he's famous and he called me and we started chatting and he said well i'm going to be in town next month we're doing another round of commercials and i'd love to see you guys and it felt amazing oh my god this is great and about a month and a half went by and he called me and says i'm in town are you uh, you know yeah and we all and we had lunch and there was hugs there was tears we hadn't talked he met his grandkids it was it was a big deal and i, I remember my takeaway from that was well that's that's awesome then a few months later hey i'm, I'm gonna be back in town for another commercial i'd love to see you and this went on for a couple of months he living in vermont as mentioned but then the commercial stopped he they didn't renew his contract there's a whole story about that it's not important and then I didn't see him. And at the time, I was running two businesses, and I had two kids, and I had just remarried. And there, I'm not getting on a plane anytime soon to go back east to visit. I, I just, I couldn't. I just had too many responsibilities, and you know, living paycheck to paycheck. And you know, he's a multimillionaire living in a mansion that he built by hand in Vermont. And I'm thinking to myself, how about it's my birthday coming up? You want to? Oh well. Uh, turns out. The beginning of the end for me, and this is sort of in line with the questions that you have, Todd, is I quickly realized the only time I ever saw the guy was when he had something to do in L.A. He would include me for a few hours on one of the days he was here. And he still does that. There has never once been, I'm getting on a plane and I'm going to see my child. To answer your question, Todd, he knows not what he does. If I said to him, you know, you're a schmuck, he'll say, are you kidding me? Every time I'm in L.A., I spend time with you. In his mind, in his mind, he's doing the right thing. In my mind, if my child lived in Guam or Borneo and he said, I miss you, dad, I'm on a fucking plane. But that's not him. That's not his style. That's not his thing. So he, in his mind, thinks, I do. I try. I do. I give. In my mind, it's your terms suck and they don't feel good. And most recently, Christmas came. Late, we got some Christmas cards. Fine. You know, there's a chip on his shoulder because I had a conversation with him when we reconciled about five years ago, six years ago. I was finishing up a messy divorce. I had already been, when I say messy, I was divorced, but I had been remarried because I can't be alone, apparently. And um, most of us, there's can't. a long, <laughs> long story there. <laughs> but uh, I was just all these things. I'm trying to buy a house, and all this stuff was going down. And I reached out to my multi-millionaire, super successful father and asked for some advice and had hoped maybe he'd say, hey, you need a couple of bucks. I can help you. Know, it's something. And I got bent out of shape. I was like, you know, he doesn't owe me anything at all. I, I don't expect anything at all. But not only did he deflect every attempt that I made at looking for just advice, he wanted no part of being involved in any decision making in my life of any kind. I didn't call to borrow money. I called to see what resources I had with my dad. He knows how to swing a hammer. Could he help me fix this new house? Is there, you know, anything, anything? And I wrote him a letter and I said to him, you won the lottery. You won the lottery. You not only got all your dreams come true as an actor and an artist, you became a multimillionaire because of it. You won the fucking lottery. And that's wonderful. But then you think to yourself, what would I do if I won the lottery? To me, 
I don't judge what people do or don't do when they win the lottery. I just know what I would do if I won the lottery. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so my dad wins the lottery. He's been a shitty parent his entire fucking life. He just chooses to not redeem himself. Or when he does, he tries to redeem himself on a level that's only good for him. And here is his son. He just got through a shitty divorce. He's struggling. He just made a big career change. I'm working. I'm trying to buy a house. I'm completely fucked. Not only does he not want to offer advice, he's not offering anything at all. My takeaway was I told him, I said, you won the fucking lottery and no one would know it, including yourself. You're the stingiest human being. You don't share anything. You're incapable of sharing. And, you know, he took it as all about the money. But to me, it's like, how easy is it to share when you don't have to worry about money? Even just your time. That's what was really painful for me because it wasn't that he owes me anything, but what he could do if he really gave a shit and wanted to share share with me like, hey, kid, I care about you. You know what? When you get that house, I'll come stay with you and help you redo the kitchen. You won the lottery. It's not like you need to go get a fucking job or you can't afford a plane ticket. But do you think maybe part of it is that he's like worried that, you know, just in that kind of disordered thinking that he's worried that, you know, when you do call for something that that's what you want is that you want a piece of the pie. He's that way, period. <laughs> and and for sure, my, my point is, is in answering Todd's question from like three hours ago, sorry <laughs> to ramble, but my point is he just doesn't, in his mind, taking the call and listening to me was all he needed to do. And, and he's given, wait, I gave you 20 minutes on the phone. What do you want from me? You know, so he's, he just is not, he doesn't get it. And again, it's not an excuse. I don't, he's not out of jail free with me because he's also basically not in my life. Like I said, Christmas came along, barely heard from him. Recently, I turned 51. Right before that, my daughter turned 18, huge birthday. And directly after that, my son turned 13. Three big birthdays. All missed. Nothing. Not, I, had to, I had to tell him, you know, your granddaughter just turned 18. And then even more recently than that, a few weeks ago, my daughter graduated from high school. Nothing. Zero. Well, I mean, so. obviously all of that is incredibly hurtful and something that clearly has stuck with you. And I would call it, I mean, would you consider it traumatizing? <laughs> A hundred percent. And I mean, you know, I don't want to make this a bitch fest about him. You know, the reality is when it comes to the entertainment business, let's go back to sort of the crux of all this. When it comes back to the entertainment business, the price that's paid for folks to get entertained is pretty tremendous. There's an environmental impact. There's a financial impact. There's a spiritual and emotional impact that is never accounted for. And I'll give you an example that will maybe drive some of that home. I've worked, you mentioned director's assist. So what I used to do is actually called video assist. And video assist is, I used to set up all the monitors on a film set. And so all the camera feeds would come to me and I would distribute them so that the filmmakers could see what the heck was going on. And I did this for 30 years of my life. I've done countless movies. I've had incredible experiences. I'm very proud of it. And we can go on forever about it. In that process, I missed my kids' first steps. I wasn't there for my wife's birthday. I missed my experiences that I should have had and rites of passage that should have taken place. Because to make movies, the entire company must sacrifice their life becomes the movie. And so there's an impact 
to all this. My father, my mother, same thing. Yeah, they had a kid, but their career came first. This wasn't a doctor or a lawyer who did a 12-hour day and came home. These are people like myself who spent 30 years working in film and doing 20-hour days and not having enough energy to do laundry and not have enough energy to give a hug and wanted to be left alone when they weren't working. And so there's just a huge impact on the entertainment business. It's, it is a mental health problem because Yes, it's great to be a star, but you hear these rumors like a great example. Many famous actors who you hear, oh, you're not supposed to make eye contact or, you know, you know, this sort of thing. These people are protecting themselves because it's an abusive world that we live in in entertainment. It's not intentionally abusive. It is the byproduct of the work we do. I was recently telling a story. I did a, about eight movies with an African-American actor. That's all I'll say. Who's very famous for being funny. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but I had I, I, this person always has this reputation of being mean, or you know, don't don't say anything, or what. And I got to know them quite well. And the reason I bring this up is I think it's super interesting. He said something to me I had never thought of, and he said, "You know, everyone recognizes me as being this funny guy, and I am, and I love it, and I'm proud. I'm thrilled to have this talent. I'm thrilled to be able to do that, and I love it. It's my passion. But I'm not always funny." And in fact, my default setting isn't funny. My default setting, and it's true, he's kind of a shy person. But every single fan or even just person that he interacts with has this expectation that he's this funny guy. And he knows going into every interaction, he's likely going to let that person down. That's his life. That's why he stays home. Oh, I just got chills. That's like so insane. I mean, like just the pressure. Yeah. He just, he stays home. He doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't, he's literally a shut in because of his own success. Because he knows if that little kid says, Oh my God, I love you so funny. If he doesn't meet that expectation, he's a letdown and he hates that feeling. And so this happens on that grand scale, but also happens, you know, all the time in our industry, not just from the performers too, producers, directors, writers, costume people, you know, people have reputations and they do things and it's just really taxing. And your safe place is supposed to be your friends and family. And unfortunately, I just never really had that on the family side. My safe place was never at home. And then when I later on became working as a crew member, an actor, writer, director, producer, video assist, all, all the stuff I've done, you know, you just see it more clearly and you just, you recognize that efforts need to be made in order to protect yourself and the people that you love from it because it's a monster. 100%. Goldie, I want to shift gears here for just a second. We're aware, we want to congratulate you that you've basically lost almost 60 pounds recently, which is a That's huge correct. feat. Woohoo! Um, how, yes. how have you dealt with body image in the industry growing up as an actor? Was there pressure to be a certain size or to, because you were a character kid, did they want you to stay heavy or did they want you to get skinny? Like, did you have any mm -hmm. pressure from your family, from directors, from agents, from managers? I mean, and this was right. back in the, this was the, this was in the seventies, eighties and nineties, right? Yeah. So, Again, here comes a story. I'm 14 years old and I get this job to be on Morning Star, Evening Star. And I get this job because I'm doing comedy improv and I'm doing the showcase and we weren't at the Laugh Factory yet, but it, I'd gotten some attention and, and I got the job. At the time at 14, I'm sure you guys remember, everything changes for you as a person at 14. The voice changes, your skin changes. I got a little pudgy, little pudgy. So when I say a little pudgy, you know, my default setting was what, 160 pounds? Maybe I was 175 pounds. 
I, I got a little heavy. My voice changed. They wanted me to be the fat, funny kid on this TV show. This left me no qualms. That, that's what they wanted. And basically, my agent, my parents agreed to signing off on a rapid weight gain program sponsored by CBS. These are days when we didn't know that this was inappropriate. And in four months, I gained 60 pounds. And I began the first three episodes in a fat suit underneath my wardrobe to be the fat, funny kid. Yep, 100%. You know what? Who gives a shit? At 14, you're like, oh my God, I'm on TV. And you know, I'm like, yeah. oh, another donut. And I get Let to eat whatever donut. I want. Yeah. <laughs> all day, encouraged all day. Guys, we got you. Taquitos. Oh, you know, it's great. So I was in heaven. And then the show got canceled. And I was 60 pounds overweight. And thankfully, it fell off. Just fell off. Yeah, because you're young. Of course. And I, w- I wasn't supposed to be 60 pounds overweight. And everything was great. And I can't continue my career. And I worked. And I played music in a band. I am call myself a drummer, but I'm not. And I had fun. And I opened up a coffee bar. And I had all this great stuff in my life. And, and everything was good. And I remember I was about 24 years old. And I was in this band. And the lead singer came up to me. And he says, you know, we, we should have a band meeting. We have a band meeting. And you know, we're getting some attention here. We might get a record deal. You know, image is everything. And I think we should all start working out. And I thought, hmm, you just directed at me. And he goes, well, you've, you've put on some weight. And I hadn't noticed it, but around 24, 25, like I just started gaining weight for no reason. It wasn't like I went from eating alfalfa sprouts and juice to pizza. Nothing changed. I just started putting on weight. And I've wrestled with my weight since that age, up and down. I'm not a diet person, whatever. I just you'd hear people say, oh, I stopped eating cheese. I lost 20 pounds. I stopped eating cheese and I gained five pounds. I was just that person. Like it just never worked for me. It's a fucking nightmare. And, you know, I just wish it was Renaissance because then I must fucking model. I know. I've said that so many times. It's it's genetics, you know, I just think it kicks in in like your twenties and, you know, ugh. turns out I destroyed my metabolism when I was a kid by that rapid weight loss, weight gain and loss. And to this day, I struggle with it. I have my whole life. Like I say, what's worked for me is it doesn't matter. It's not a weight loss show, but I'm I'm essentially fasting and I really avoid sugar and stuff like that. But it has been devastating for me because I grew up worried about every hair on my head. I'm not a vanity person, but I'm cognizant that people judge people for the way they look, certainly in our industry. To answer your question, Todd, it is fucking brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And I've seen, I am friends with actors that you would think it's not an issue and you come to find out that they're tortured by it. And it's really terrible. One of the things that has been suggested to me repeatedly is you got to exercise, you got to exercise, you got to exercise. This goes back to my dad and I'm just bringing it up because this is what real trauma looks like. This is maybe the hardest thing for me to talk about because it's something that just completely infiltrates my life. You know, when I was a young boy, And I wanted to go do something with my dad, like I think most kids would want to do. It always came up that he had to go for a run or that he was going to go to the gym because vanity for my father as an actor was everything. He had to have the physique. He had to look good or he wasn't going to get the job. And it consumed him. And it was his priority. It was his priority over me. It was his priority over my mom. It was always about weight loss and working out and looking good and lying in the sun and being tan and taking care of himself. A lot of, now the new term for it is self-care. This wasn't self-care. This wasn't self-care. This was pure vanity. 
an obsession. And what was happening was, is that he would want me to go for a run. What 12 year old wants to go for a run? With their dad, who can outpace them, <laughs> yes, and just while get left he's outpacing, yeah, and then while he's outpacing, you say, "What's fucking wrong with you? Can't you keep up?" You know, like that. It's like, whoa. So, exercise and fitness specifically was the most disruptive element of my childhood. It caused my parents to divorce in a lot of ways because he would choose the gym over my mother. It was a thing, and you know, when you have someone in your life who who hurts you you often find yourself not wanting to be like that person, consciously and subconsciously. And the irony is, is my whole life struggling with weight. Now I've come to find out it's, I fucked up my metabolism and the pituitary scenario and testosterone and like all these scientific things. But I also come to find out and realize that every time you hear someone say, man, I went for a run this morning and then I swam 32 laps and then I went on the bucket treadmill and then I steam bed and then I feel like a million bucks. I hate doing it. God, I feel good after I do. Now for me, I hate doing it. And then after I do it, I feel like I'm just like him and I don't want to be like him. And I've been not been able to break that cycle. Just the word exercise, I associate with being like him. And I do not, I've worked so hard. My kid stubs their toe. I'm right there. I'm not a helicopter. I'm there. My kid graduates. I'm there. You know, you want to talk to me? I'm available. I'm here. I'm a father first. I'm everything else second. And that's just it. I do not, I need to break the cycle. And part of breaking the cycle is I don't want to be like him. So it's horrible for me. I mean, I've, I've talked about this countless hours with experts. Like, how do I feel good after riding a stationary bike rather than hating myself? To this day, it's a tough nut to crack because it's so deeply embedded. It's like, wow, now I'm like my abuser. You know, you just don't want to do it. So it's brutal. That's, yeah, it's very deep seated. It's not something you can just kind of like, well, you know, I just, you just got to get your, just put the clothes on, put your exercise clothes out and, and you'll just, you'll want to do it like that. There's a whole mental process going on. Right. I had a therapist once say to me, well, if you were abused by someone who hit you, the way you heal from that and later in life and to not repeat is to just don't hit your kids. So when your abuse is something that's actually good for you, it's really hard to take the approach. Well, you just don't do that when you get older. You don't, you know, you break, you break the cycle. Well, I've broken the cycle and now I'm a fat fuck. So it's a double-edged sword. Except for not now because you have lost almost 60 pounds and you found your own way of, of dealing with it in, in your own way. Yeah. My life is about me and, and my kids and my, my work and I don't hold a grudge. I wish the very best for my family and for my father and for everybody. I, you know, one of the great things about being married to a Thai Buddhist is you, you come to realize that it's, you know, no ego, no problem. And honestly, no ego, no problem is about the greatest advice I ever got because I can internalize, I can question, I can wonder, I can try to figure out. And it's just a waste of my time. It is what it is. And I accept what it is. Certainly wished and hoped and prayed many, many days and nights that things would be different, but that gets me nowhere too. So I take, you know, I take it by the reins and do my thing and I do what I think's best for me and for my family. And I have to say it's not perfect, but I'm really proud of, of not, you know, being in a gutter somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I th think we should all commend you for not being in a gutter, but you don't seem like the kind of person that would, would end up there. 
Following up from, you know, you mentioned that you're kind of breaking the cycle and and that you have your own kids and you have a different kind of mindset. Eden, your daughter, just graduated from high school, correct? Yep, she did. She did. Okay, congrats to her. And you have a son, Jacob, who's 13. Yes. So do you feel like, you know, now that you are, you, you've mentioned that you don't want to be anything like what you experienced, but how how have you been able to kind of make that adjustment? And do you think that being a parent in this industry has its own unique challenges that you kind of have to fight as well? Absolutely. So I don't make a conscious decision every day to be different or break a chain. I want to make that super clear. One of the things that I did was work on myself to understand what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes your parents teach you that when you're a kid by telling you or showing you. And in my case, I was told one thing and shown something else, which is really confusing as a kid. But that's the result of growing up with performers who are dramatic and over the top and narcissistic and all those things. So it took me a long time to kind of figure out what the barometer is. I created my own barometer for myself. What is right? What is wrong? Not just for me, but what is truly what right? What is truly wrong? And I think I'm pretty comfortable with that at this point. And I use that to guide me. I really do use my gut. I feel like I have a good gut instinct you know, raising an 18-year-old girl or raising a daughter to, to become 18 has been a challenge for sure. But my approach always was say yes as often as possible to everything you possibly can so that when you say no, it holds water. That's a big thing because a lot of parents say, no, 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 put that down. No, no, no. And no becomes nothing. It just becomes a word. So I try to say yes as much as I possibly can because unless it's like a razor blade flamethrower juggling thing, I pretty much am okay with them having a couple bumps and bruises in life emotionally and physically. So I'm very protective in the most subtle way I can possibly be. And I really feel that part of protecting my kids is allowing them to be individuals because if you don't, they're not going to be prepared for earth. So I will let them go hatchet throwing and, you know, I'm, we're very big, big into sailing and boating, which is a gift from my father. Actually, he, he exposed it to me as a young age and I care, you know, I take with me the good as much as I possibly can and try to toss out the bad, but you know, the kids, they hop in the boat we've swam with whales. We've, you know, we have a little skiff that my son drives around. I just let him go and do what he wants to do. And I trust them and I let them make little mistakes along the way. And, you know, they, I think, I think they're interesting people. And the most important thing for me is that they don't appear to be fearful like some other younger people are. And I hope it's the result of me exposing them to as much as possible. But yeah, they're both born and raised in LA. They've been around the film industry their entire life. Daddy's been gone a lot, but they've visited me a lot as well. And they've seen me working. Are they interested in working in the, in the biz at all? At this point, my daughter is going into college as an artist, which I'm I celebrate and I think it's great. She's going to be around her people, which is huge. And that's what's most important. I don't know what that could turn into. She could, she's got her eyes on makeup and wardrobe and set design and stuff. She's very interested in it, but I don't know that that's where she'll end up. And my son, Jacob is a video gamer, like every other 13 year old who's discovered, you know, I believe maybe he's discovered some dirty pictures on the internet, which is a whole weird thing to navigate. At 13, I had a national geographic. I would not let go of <laughs> But he now has an iPhone, so who knows what he's up to. But I try to guide him through that circus the best I can. I mean, look, I'm raising kids in a time when marijuana is legal, when the internet has everything in your hands, 
palm of your hands. And that's hard to navigate. But, you know, the most important thing is, is reality. And I really try to put them in a scenario every day I possibly can of what this is reality, guys. This is it. And hopefully it leads to the right things. Well, knowing you personally, and I know, and I know your children, you are a very, very good father and you are Thank you very, very present in their lives and you're setting a very good example for them. But I want to know, I want to know if you didn't grow up in this industry, what do you think you would be doing now? Do you feel that like it was expected from your parents or do you think that, that mm. you just sort of, I mean, what would you do? What would you be doing if you, if you didn't have anything to do with the film industry? I've done it. That's the great thing. So when I turned 16, I have like $100,000 sitting in a Jackie Coogan account. So when you're a young working actor, Jackie Coogan played Spanky on The Little Rascals way back in the day. And his parents took all his money, everything. So the Screen Actors Guild and whatever governing bodies there are out there decided that if you're under 18 and you work as an actor, your parents can take a percentage, right, to help cover costs to be your guardian and get you to and from work and whatever. But the bulk, like 80, 85, 90%, I can't remember what it is, goes into what's called a Jackie Coogan account is what they call it. I don't know if that's real, but that's what I recall. So you can't touch it till you're 18. And it's to protect the kids that are working as actors and, you know, mom and dad can't squander their kids' money. So you can also at 16 become emancipated from your family. <laughs> and you, that makes you basically an 18-year-old as far as legally. And I did that. I did it really so that I can continue working as an actor without having the restrictions of being a minor. But the byproduct of that was that this hundred grand or so got released to me. And after buying a boat and taking everyone out to dinner a lot, what was left I used along with an investment my dad gave me, which was great. And I opened up a restaurant in New York. So I was really interested in that, really interested in, in the social side of it. The I love food. I went to the Culinary Institute and took a managerial course and did, took all kinds of stuff and wanted to, to really be a restaurateur. I thought it was super hip. And of course, I didn't know we had this in off, yeah. have this in common here. In common, you're both you're both uh, owners of restaurants. Yeah, it's like it's like a hospitality kind of thing. I don't know. I just liked it. I like the energy of it. I always looked at a, a great restaurant as being an extension of a family. And I don't know, something about it was very cool. I was drawn to it. But the crazy thing is, is that that's not where it ended for me. I had live music two nights a week and an open mic night. And then that led to me meeting a really talented singer songwriter. And then we would go back to my house and smoke a bunch of weed and play music. And that turned into me being a drummer in his band. And then we got a record contract. And then we opened up for a couple of acts on the East Coast. And that turned into a U.S. tour, and then I sold the restaurant, and I toured with a band. And to answer your question, Todd, I have done a lot other than the, the film industry and entertainment. Yes, music is part of it, but I've owned restaurants. I have invested in real estate. I've done a number of things. I tried to open up a business in maritime business where I was going to do food service on a boat for fishermen. Like I've tried a bunch, a bunch of stuff. To, to answer your question, it's – the most intoxicating elements of my life, professionally, personally is another story, professionally, have all come from access to or come from entertainment. You know, I'm not smart enough to cure cancer. There's just no way. But I am funny enough to have someone suffering from cancer have a smile, which I think is really important. So I go with that. I feel like I have something to give not just my colleagues or the industry, but I feel like my sensibilities, my cognizance of human beings and 
how they think and what they need, what they want, what matters, how scared we all are at the end of the day, you know, is impacted by some of the work that I'm involved in doing. And it means a lot to me. That's amazing. I mean, I think just to kind of bring it a little full circle, you know, it seems almost like with your ability to be open and to be vulnerable, but also all this experience that you've been through, it's almost like you are the most interesting man in the world. And I think it's just, it's, I mean, I just think that you've, you've done, you've taken, you know, just part of my French taken a shitty kind of situation or, or upbringing, you know, not that it was, like you said, you didn't feel it was necessarily at the time or even, even now, like excessively abusive, but it was not ideal by any means. And, and really taken that and ran with it in a, in a positive way. And that the, I mean, I just commend you so much for, for doing that. And, and I know that, the funny man stuff is awesome. And everybody, you know, we're going to get to that very shortly. But, you know, I think that overall, I just had to take a moment to tell you that that it's incredible, you know, kind of how much you've been through and how much you've done in the wake of that. So, but, you know, to, thank you very much. Welcome. But we know that you have, you do actually have plans and there may actually be a chopper waiting somewhere. I thank you guys for having me. And Todd, you know, I have a great relationship with Todd outside of these podcasts because Todd and I have collaborated together creatively and he's an incredibly talented person and I really trust his instinct. And I I think this, this podcast is super cool and it's important. You know, those, those folks out there on the, in the universe that suffer and it's pretty much everybody, whether folks want to admit it or not, you know, it's nice to be able to hear you're not alone, but I'm about to just say one last thing before they, and you can go ahead and fire up that chopper there. Okay, great. But (laughs) my parting words to you guys that I've been thinking about, and Todd's heard me say this before, but it was the very best advice I had ever gotten in my life. And I I just want to say this for anyone out there just living on our planet. Planet Earth is a rock in space floating through space. We know very little about it, but we do know about this rock that we're on. And we're all in this together, folks. And I think it's time we just recognize that we're all on the only spaceship that we know of that can sustain us. And we got to start getting along a little bit. And I think that would be great. The one thing I just wanted to say to your listeners and to you guys is the best advice I ever got in my life. Came a very talented actor. Doesn't matter. Remain nameless. I was trying to do some something funny. I was trying to do a funny scene in improv and I couldn't get there. And I kept trying to be funny. I kept trying to be good. I kept trying to come up with the line that I needed to say. And I think people do this in life, whether it's on stage or, you know, you're at work and you're trying to do a good job. You're trying to do, be good at marriage. You're trying to be a good parent. You're trying to be a good friend. Whatever it is we try to do. And this advice came to me and I'm just going to say it and maybe it doesn't mean much when it comes out of my fat mouth, but it might mean something in an hour or so when you're sitting at home having a cup of coffee or, you know, just taking a second for yourself. And uh, I just wanted to share it with everyone. And that is that all of us, every single one of us on this spaceship that was hurtling through space, we have access to all of the answers in the universe. But we have to step aside and let them in. Yeah, no, that's very powerful because we are kind of our own obstacles in life. We sure are. We sure are. And we're really good at putting more of them in front of us. Very true. Agreed. Very yeah. true. Well, cool. I'm just pumped that this happens. And Todd, you know, you should take it away from here. I don't want to ruin it while we're ending on a high note. <laughs> it's really great. Goldie, thank you so much for being on the program. And thank you of for course. sharing your trauma with us and how you've overcome it. And I think knowing you and knowing your beautiful wife, Kat, she's been such a great influence in your life and in your children's lives. She has. And you're celebrated here and we appreciate you. 
Thank you guys so much for having me. And when you're in town, come by our restaurant. We'd love to see you. I would love to come to your restaurant. I can't wait. Just put me on the list though. (laughs) Anytime. All right. Thanks guys. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. And, And listeners, thanks for tuning in. What'd you think? I mean, I was, it's hard to put into words because he, I thought he, it was just so amazing how much he bared his soul. But at the same time, it wasn't like a woe is me. It wasn't like, oh, I went through all this and this is why everything's so terrible. It was like a very almost objective look at what he had been through. And you can tell that he's worked through a lot of things in therapy. Of course. I mean, the trauma it was, yeah. And he, he's a big proponent of therapy and Goldie, he's one of those people that I look to, you know, sometimes, sometimes weekly to, for advice or for his interpretation of a situation or whatever. But I think it's because he has been in so many situations and so many, and has been through so much heartache. It's almost that he puts himself in that, in not that he's numb to it, but it's like if he can, he can separate it. You know, and objectively look at it and say, this is what it was and this is what it is. And this is why I am the way I am. This is why. But, you know, it's funny. It's kind of some of the things he he wouldn't point out himself really. It's like I can kind of tell that like his self-deprecating comments and Mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, the, the, the humor aspect and then add in there, you know, how many things he's actually done. And he's not the first person to tell you that. Like, I mean. We had to go, you had to tell me all this stuff. I had to go search IMBD, do all these things to actually wrap up. And then he, at the end, really kind of summarized everything when you asked, you know, what would you have done if you hadn't been in the industry? I mean, I think that was a moment that I really connected with him, not just because of the restaurant thing, but that he never put himself in a box. Like he always followed what he wanted to do and kept kept at it and, and went with the flow. It wasn't like he was trying to force a square into a round hole. It was like, he just seems like an old soul to me. Totally. And he is a very funny man. He did stand up for years. He, you know, obviously is rooted in improv. I still think he should, I think he should still be doing it. I would watch him on yeah. Saturday Night Live or any of those shows like tomorrow. He's so funny, but it does show you, you know, a lot of comedians go through very, very, have been through dark times. And I was just so impressed with his bravery to, I don't think he's ever spoken publicly about his father. So that was nothing that I could find about that. So yeah, I mean, so that was pretty, that was pretty incredible. And if his father were to listen to this, I would just, I would hope that he would understand that Goldie, it's very clear. He loves his father, but he wants his father to be his father. <laughs> and yeah, well, and maybe in a way acknowledge exactly. the pain that he's, that, that has been caused because, you know, with a lot of people with personalities like that, it's, that is the separation from everybody else is living in kind of this own world, their own world, a bubble of, of internal, you know, it's not just, oh, me, 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 but it's that on top of that is that they live in a different reality. Right. And so, you know, I, I would also say that if his dad were to ever listen to this, that it'd be kind of a holding a mirror up kind of situation of you might see it this way, but other people don't, especially that your loved ones. So maybe it's worth taking a minute. Right. And to think about that. 
at the end of the day, you would hope that it would hit him at some point, like this is my child. But if he's already up there in age and has already has another life and other children and other grandchildren, and he's sort of involved in that, that's the life he chose. You know, you're missing out on a really great human being because Goldie has turned his, his heartache into kindness and acceptance for all humans. And I would hope one day that they, they would be able to have some sort of a reconciliation or, or his father was some had a, like, you know, have an aha moment. Yeah. But I do think, I do respect the fact that I think Goldie's gotten to a point where he's accepted that, that that's yeah. not necessarily going to happen. I mean, that that's right. the acceptance. I think that everybody else and he's trying to kind of preach is that, you know, you're never going to get that. Right. I mean, yes, there are certain situations you might get that, but in this scenario and in a lot of scenarios in life, I think that was kind of what he's trying to impart on all of us is that it is what it is and life is what you make it. And I, I think that he's just, you know, we could, he could be way more messed up coming from two <laughs> very narcissistic parents. So I think that, you know, I agree with you. I think he's hysterical. But I feel here's kind the of, thing. I met his mother. His mother is so amazing and charming and they do yeah. have a very, very strong relationship. And yeah, and I'm not, I'm just taking his words. I'm yeah, not, no, 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 I know you. I know you're not calling them narcissists. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm literally just repeating. But I, I think Goldie, you know, he, he says that to her face with a smile. I think he still has a, very much an affection for his mother. And she is, she's a class act when I met her, you know, very, very prim and proper. But it would have been interesting to know her because she's 91. It would have been yeah, very that, interesting yeah. to know her, you know, back in the day. But she's, you know, you would never know she's 91. She's very sprightly. Oh, wow. Um, well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's always good. I think in general, like the, the thing that, from this whole interview that I feel like I want the listeners to know is that we could have probably talked for five hours about 100%. everything going on in his life. And we tried to just kind of focus and keep it to the things that were kind of the most impactful to him. But even the way he speaks about his mother is, is very reverential. It's not like, yes. you know, like, yeah, she'll, he'll, he makes jokes about, oh, well, she, she'll tell you that she had the same kind of day, but it's overall, he is a very layered person. And I hope we can have like a part two or, or something where we can just have him do jokes or just talk about, you know, like all of his restaurant stuff. Like there's so many aspects to him. And oh, I yeah. just hope working, everybody working, can. You know, working with Brad Pitt all the time and working. Yes. Which I keep saying, why are we not having Brad Pitt on this show? He has to have Brad trauma. Talk about his trauma. <laughs> he's got to have it. And he's going to tell us. Well, what a refreshing and just. I think today was a very intense, beautifully intense podcast. And thank you, Goldie, for being so forthcoming today. Yes, thank you so much. It was, it gave us all a lot to think about, but I think it, you know, was a, a very healing and wonderful thing that I hope a lot of people can relate to and also see kind of how they're not alone with all this. Doesn't matter how much fame and fortune you have, we are not alone. So I thank you, Goldie, so much for coming on. As always, Todd, I love seeing you. Love seeing and you. I can't wait to see you again next you week. Yeah, see you next week. 